Yoram Hazoni is a political philosopher, president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem, and the author most recently of a book that stirred quite a bit of controversy, The Virtue of Nationalism. I'm pleased he could join us for a discussion on international order and disorder, freedom and sovereignty, here and now on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Yoram Hazoni, I've just said you're a political philosopher. At least a few people may now have switched to another podcast thinking, oh, my God, that's going to be so wonky and so daunting, I can't do it. But for those who, have, who are still with us, so those who are with us, let me wade into these waters slowly before we try to swim. Let me ask this very, I think, simple question. A political philosopher, what's the, what's the main question a political philosopher attempts to address? How, how do we govern ourselves? And perhaps right. who governs, who rules, maybe. Well, would be. Every, every question that has to do with, with, uh, with uh, government, which may be the state or it might be tribal government, anything that has to do with the, 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 the way that human beings um, adopt uh, constitutions, laws, pub public traditions, all of that is in, in the zone of political philosophy. And some, sometimes it extends even to things like uh, the family but basically social organization and how do we govern and rule ourselves. So if I'm reading you correctly, you would argue, you are arguing that there are a limited number of possible international systems right now that we can choose from. Right. And what are those? Well, the, 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 the book talks about three of them. And it, I, tried, I try not to make the book into like kind of, you know, a dogmatic uh, system that that you know that doesn't you know where, where I say absolute things that have no exceptions because I think those those kinds of things are usually not very successful. Um, but if you simplify things, uh, there's uh, there's three kinds of political order that we've known. There there's uh, tribal order or what what I call the the order of tribes and clans. Where there is no centralized government, this is the way that human beings uh, lived for most of human history. I mean, for thousands and thousands of years, um, it's uh, it's the kind of order that Americans are probably fam familiar with by watching, you know, by looking at Afghanistan on television. Uh, it's organized without a central government. People live in families that are allied as clans, and then clans ally themselves to other clans and make tribes mm -hmm. and then tribes allied to other tribes we 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 call nations and, so th that's one kind of and order. they may or may, and the tribes may or may not coalesce into a, an actual nation right uh, th that's right they, they they may or may not so like but, in africa for example I, I lived in africa for a number of years before the europeans divided it up into nation states you had I would think that what you're describing is this, this tribal system, though in some places you also had tribes kind of coalescing into what you might call nations and even perhaps empires within a, within a, within, within a, a broad definition of the term, yes? Right. So, uh, so the three options are right. uh, either you live uh, uh, in this kind of tribal order without a centralized government or you have a, you have a state. And states, in my book, I distinguish between national states – which are the the state of a a single nation, and you know may, maybe it's allies, but r roughly a single nation, or the alternative is an imperial state. An imperial state is one that seeks to rule, you know, as many nations as possible. Right, and, conquer them, rule them, deprive right. them of their sovereignty. Right. So, so uh, in uh, in my telling. Uh, the history of the West, probably a lot more than the West, but for now let's just say the West, 
the, the history of the Western world going all the way back to biblical times in ancient Greece is the is kind of the seesaw between uh, the ideal of independent nations where each, each big nation has its own national state or nation state. That's one form of order. And the other form of order is like the Roman Empire or the Babylonian Empire or the Assyrian Empire or the Persian Empire. All of these are empires where some people or, 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 or some, some, some nation goes out and tries to conquer the four corners of the earth, as they used to say, mm-hmm. uh, with the goal of, uh, of uh, eliminating needless strife and bring peace and prosperity. That's kind of the, the, uh, the, the ancient creed of these imperial states. So uh, simplifying somewhat, maybe not too much though, most of the world was tribally organized or disorganized for many, 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 many centuries. Right. At a certain point, uh, empires began to rise up and compete, the Roman Empire being perhaps the best known, but by no means the, uh, the only one. They were, and there followed Islamic empires very powerful ones of all sorts, and empires were probably for many, many centuries the dominant form of international organization uh, in the world. And then at a certain point, nation states began to evolve, the peace of Westphalia being the, the moment we, we are, that is most well known as beginning to say uh, in, in Europe, what we call Europe, let's begin to organize ourselves as nation states. Is that reasonable simplification? Yeah, it, that, that's a that that that's very good. I I would just add that uh, that although the the modern uh, nation state system really does uh, come into its own in the middle of the 17th century with Westphalia around then, but uh, but there are ancient uh, national states. The 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 Bible does describe them, and uh, uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't just uh, Jewish. You had uh, uh, a um, uh, an Armenian uh, nation state uh, in Roman times, which was powerful and famous for centuries. And there's all sorts of other examples. And Armenia was a nation state. You wouldn't say it was an empire. It wasn't attempting to to right. rule over its neighbors necessarily. Right. And we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but maybe that's okay. Yes, one of the arguments I, I think you're making, and it's an it's an important one, is that modern Israel is a essentially a repli- replication of one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of nation states. And tell me if I'm right on that. And yeah. then let's define what a nation what we mean by a nation state. And you've 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 I, you've defined it several times in your book. Well, yeah, yes, the state of Israel is consciously. I mean, if you read its de- Declaration of Independence, the, the the founders of the state of Israel understood themselves to be recreating a version of the uh, of the biblical Jewish kingdom and uh, the the concept of the national state is that it uh, it seeks uh, to govern itself it uh, it is bounded that is there, there there's some some kind of uh, natural limits that have to do with uh, with a single nation and and where it sits on the the ter- terrain geographically, so a nation would have borders, right? Okay, uh, national states have borders. Empires don't have borders, mm-hmm. right? An imperial state just wants to rule as or, much as it can, or its borders continue to expand or shrink, well, uh, as uh, as case may be. Yeah, but 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 in principle, empires don't recognize borders. Mm. So I mean, you're right that their power may limit them, right? But in principle, they'll take what they can. They have frontiers rather than borders. <laughs> well, in, said, in, a, yes. in a way, yeah. So, but 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 the the Bible is, as far as we know, it's the first it's the first place where uh, where a God, instead of telling his people go conquer the whole world, tells his people you have borders here. They are, and you're not allowed to cross them. You're not right. allowed to go conquer the neighbors. Right. And and right. Uh, God is saying to the Jews, "Here's the land I give you." But your neighbors, the Moabites, I, I gave them their I give them their own land. So don't take that from them. You can't. I won't well, you, you, you you can't. Right. right. So uh, so to go back to the the modern nation state idea, first of all, it's bounded. Second, it has a a um, a uh, a dominant people that find that expresses its self determination, as we say today, uh, through that state. Among other things, um, that that means that uh, that the rulers. Are appointed from within the people, mm-hmm. right? Where, whereas in in empires, right, the the emperor will come along and say, 
I don't, I don't like your 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 king. I'll replace him with somebody who's who's good for me. But my regent, that, my governor general, my well, right satrap. Right. So so he so it may he may have he may be called the king, but he's still being appointed. He serves at the you know at the at the authority and then and and favor of this emperor somewhere far far away who belongs to a different people and has a different agenda. Let's right. say. So you so you have. The people, and they, these are the various tribes who have coalesced, they have certain things in common, perhaps a language, perhaps a religion, right. perhaps traditions, perhaps culture. All that's right. true. And, 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 and their own law. And their own law. Now, that doesn't preclude the possibility that there may be minorities within that state. They're, they're always minorities. They're we, always we, minorities. Yeah. And also, going back to the Bible and how you, you utilize it, one can be most cases, not all cases, perhaps, can become a member of the, of this new society. They can remain as a minority or they can say, I accept your culture. I embrace right. your culture. I want to assimilate with your culture. Maybe I accept your God as my God now that I'm right. yeah, sort of quoting the Bible. Not, not sort of. That's a good <laughs> quote. That's well done. Uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, people today tend to confuse nation with race. And uh, when you're talking about race, you're talking about things that that you can't change. You can't join another race. You can't, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. supposedly a, you know, a, something genetic. But in the Bible, there, there there is nothing like that. The the, the biblical traditions are about uh, nationalities and nations. Nations are things that you can convert to, mm. and uh, and we the, the first time we see that is is when Israel leaves Egypt. And, uh, and, uh, in the book of Exodus, it says that all sorts of Egyptians came with the Israelite slaves and they went and they stood with them at, you know, at, at, at Sinai and re received the Ten Commandments and go on to be part of the Jewish people. Uh, and, and Moses, you know, tells Jethro, his father-in-law, who, who's not Jewish, he says to him, listen, we want, why don't you come join us? And the most famous example, of course, is Ruth, who you're just quoting, who, 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 uh, joins, she's a Moabite. And King David is descended from her, and she says, "Your uh, your people, your people will be my people to Naomi, and your God will be my God." So she she accepts not only the God that's let's say is kind of the the ideological core, you know, the, the, or the philosophical core, whatever you want, the religious core of of the people she's adopting and who are adopting her. Uh, she also accepts the people itself. There's an existing people. Your people will be my people. Uh, means your people will be my people. And that means there, there is a people with an existing character and tradition and ways. And she, she accepts those ways and traditions and becomes in order to be able to become a Jew. Okay. So now we know what a nation is. What is nationalism? Nationalism is a, uh, is a principled, uh, stance point of view, standpoint, let's say, that says that the world is governed best when uh, nations are uh, able to chart their own course independently without interference from others. So uh, a world of many nations, if you believe in a world of many nations, that makes you a nationalist. And that's traditionally opposed to an imperialist who is someone who doesn't believe in a world of many nations, someone who says, no, 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 that's a mistake. The world is actually governed best when there's a single law that's imposed by somebody on on everyone and you don't have all these you know different independent countries each one with its own laws uh fighting needlessly because somebody's gonna put a stop to it so that's what nationalism is you have a book called the virtue of nationalism you're essentially advocating for nationalism why is that a scandal <laughs> I don't know. It seems like everything I advocate for is a scandal. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing because, and look, I, you 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 hear people say, "No, nationalism is a terrible, terrible thing, and we can't have it." Now, there are those who would say, uh, French President Emmanuel Macron has tried to say to 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 differentiate between nationalism, which he dislikes. And patriotism, which he likes, you know, you know what, I, what I'm about to describe, and I'm, but sure. I think it's worth, if people are not familiar with this, he said, what, what Macron said is nationalism is a betrayal of patriotism. I find that art, according to, I don't know, I can't look, I didn't look in the French dictionary, but in the Oxford dictionary, the one definition of nationalism is simply 
very much advocacy of or support for the political independence of a particular nation or people. That sounds pretty close to the Oxford definition of patriotism, devotion to and vigorous support for one's country. Now, Macron tried to explain, he went on to say, by putting our own interests first, which he said that's what nationalists do, is, but with no regard for others, we erase the very thing that a nation holds dearest and the thing that keeps it alive, the moral values. But I don't know where it's written that you can't put your own nation's interest first while still having regard for the interests of other nations. I, As an American, I want America to do well. That's more of a priority for me than Canada doing well or Mexico to do well. But I wish Mexico and Canada well also. I also don't believe that Macron doesn't want France to do well. He may want Algeria to do well, but probably not as much as France. But Algeria has nostalgia. It was once a French possession. But I bet that if he, if you asked him about, I don't know, Mozambique or Malaysia, he wouldn't care quite as much as he does about France. So in a way, I guess I'm suggesting, with all due respect, and I guess it's not much, that Macron is making no sense whatsoever with this argument. But it's a popular argument out there. I know you've heard it. Yeah, I I don't I don't think Macron is making much sense, but but to try to uh, give him the benefit of the doubt, what he's what he's saying is um, it's okay to love the place that you were born or the language that you speak and still not to want to um, to con- for, and still not for for your government not to be concerned primarily with your own people. Um, th- this is kind of a utopian vision. It's a utopian stance. This is it, this is what leads to the European Union, where uh, where there there are no borders. The whole idea of the European Union is we're eliminating borders and we're 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 going to bring everybody under all, all of these dozens of nations in Europe we're going to bring them all under a single rule of a single law and he's saying you can uh love speaking french and being french and still give up on your national independence there's no contradiction there and that that that's true it's just kind of unattractive <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I, well, I'm not sure I entirely let's let, let's back up for a second because okay, essentially, we've defined nationalism. You've explained why nationalism you see as a good thing: the idea of independent, sovereign nation states cooperating, competing, peacefully coexisting, all of that. Um, but, but maintaining e- their sovereignty, but each know. one different from the and others. each one different from another. E- right? Each right. one, each one with its own constitutional traditions, its own religious traditions. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think that's the crucial point. Right? Is is uh, that this, this really is an argument for uh, from uh, diversity that we don't we don't have all the answers to how the, everybody on earth should live, and so the reason that we would want to have many different nations is to allow on on the one hand the freedom to experiment and on the other hand there's an, a kind of an assumption here that the uh that from the experiments um th- there there can be progress from the fact that there are, are many many different kinds of nations each one develops uh religion and science and philosophy and law develops in its own way that's that's the best hope for Getting somewhere. Okay. So, all right. So here's where I think there is some legitimate controversy in that let's, we, we, we agree in principle that nations will be different. They'll have different cultures, different laws, different traditions. Um, but some of those will mean you're talking about, you know, cuisine and dress. And if, if in one of these countries they are, let's say the Islamic Republic of Iran, hanging homosexuals from cranes, are we supposed to see that as well? That's their culture, you know. That's their religious background. So we're okay with that. Or should we be saying um, we think that's just despicable? We think that's awful, and we uh, and I don't know. We're we're not going to have normal relations with a country that does that. I, I I don't I don't think there's any anything that obligates a uh, a nationalist to like all the other nations. I mean, you said correctly earlier that be, because. The word nationalist is kind of associated with this, uh, with this hatred of everybody else. Uh, it, it's important to emphasize that uh, that um, m- most of the 
the important intellectual and political figures that have been nationalists in the last few centuries, most of them see the world the way that that you do, that I I want my nation to flourish, but I wish others well. Right. So that that's important. On the other hand, wishing others well doesn't doesn't mean that you 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 don't care at all if horrendous things are taking taking place there. You can believe that your nation should be independent and other nations should be independent, and nevertheless uh, protest or 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 go further. I mean, I, I I don't I don't I don't think that being a nationalist means that if if there is a, um, uh, a wholesale a carnage taking place in a place like Cambodia or mm-hmm. Rwanda. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know many nationalists who would say, if you have the power to get in and put a stop to it and get out mm-hmm. without then mm-hmm. occupying the country for the next century. So I, I, I think most sure. people would would agree that that right. you, that you should. There's, being a nationalist doesn't mean that you you have to suspend suspend your 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 moral judgment. Right, but there is a very big difference between somebody who in principle says others are going to do things their way and that often means i'm not going to like it and someone who says no any when there's there's only one universal mm-hmm. standard mm-hmm. and uh, and if we don't like what's going on then we go go and we fix things right because a nationalist is not necessarily in fact it probably is not usually a multiculturalist or a moral relativist when I say multiculturalist, I mean one who's, who who asserts that all cultures are essentially equal and you can't judge among cultures. And if you're a European or an American multiculturalist, you probably think your culture among those that are all equal is a little less equal, is a little worse because of the various sins that you think, uh, erroneously I would say, are unique to your culture, such as imperialism, colonialism, and racism, which actually have existed around the world throughout 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 recorded history. You agree with me on all that? I do, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think I think usually, n- normally, normal nations uh, have lots of people in them who think that their way is best. I, I, I think that's normal and it's healthy. When when nations stop thinking that their way is 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 best, they they start to give up on on life and as they start the process of disappearing, which I think is happening, by the way, in Europe and perhaps in America, which is which is uh, happening all sorts of places. And open question what what's going to happen, but. But the, the, again, there's a there's a very big difference between thinking your way is best and wanting to impose your way on everybody else, uh-huh. and that's that's the principal um, difference between a national and and and, and a, an imperial political order that that I think we need to discuss and learn and 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 adopt. One thing I want to just discuss quickly because you've written about it, I have a little bit too. Often when you have this discussion of nationalism, people say, ah, let me, don't you know that it was nationalism that brought about World War II and the Holocaust? And I think your argument and mine would be absolutely not. Hitler, who was born actually in Austria, may at some point have been a nationalist, but he became an imperialist very quickly because the very idea of the Third Reich implies an empire, not a nation state trying to prosper and flourish within its own borders. I think that's true. I mean, I, I I would I would go a little bit further. I, I I think if you read Mein Kampf, you're reading which I don't recommend necessarily, but if you do read it, you, you're reading the book of an imperialist. I mean, Hitler says explicitly that his goal is to make uh, to make Germany mistress of the globe and lord of the earth. And th- I mean that that's his 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 whole idea is is we're superior, so we should rule everybody else. Right. We should conquer. Okay, so, uh, we should so, deprive nations of sovereignty. Exactly. And so, what does he think about the national state system? Well, he despises it. He despises it. He detests the national state system. So, so you know, I I, I suggest that we not learn our lingo from Hitler because I don't <laughs> I don't think he's he's the best teacher for us. But he was. But the the existing term nationalism had referred to the independence and freedom of nations, a world of free and independent nations. That's what it meant. And Hitler, when he called himself a national socialist, he was referring to this biological imperialism that that he came up with. And uh, we're we're justifiably still scarred and traumatized, and it makes 
any kind of discussion of uh, of of this uh, uh, difficult for people. But the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean that we don't need to have this discussion. We right. we, we can't simply give up on the idea of national freedom. Because the Germans created a a, a a crazy biological empire and 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 created this horrific conflagration. Yeah, that's the wrong lesson to learn. But a lot of people, a lot of intelligent people, have taken that away and and make and make that argument, which is why I wanted to deal with it. All right, so you're making the case that nationalism is certainly superior to tribalism and is is also superior to imperialism. One might say, sure, but the British Empire, the French Empire, the Spanish Empire, even the Soviet Empire. They're all gone. So we don't really have empires anymore nowadays. So what's your problem, Yoram? Well, my problem, my, <laughs> what's my problem? I have lots of problems. A lot of people have asked you that. Let, I'm me, sure. let me tell you. <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, my, my, my problem is that 1989 comes along and the Soviet Union falls, the Berlin Wall, wall falls. And, and I had thought at the time, I thought, well, the, the the great imperial challenge to the peace of the world and, and to self-determination of nations is ended. This is great. Now we can go back to a world of independent nations, to to nations pursuing their own goals. And there were, as you know, people in the United States who who, who called for just that. That, that. that that was the view of, say, Irving Kristol or Jean Kirkpatrick at the time uh, or of Margaret Thatcher in, in, the, in, in the UK before they dumped her. And uh, and then there was this other view, which to my astonishment became very popular very quickly, which um, I guess the emblem for it is is the uh, New World Order speech by George H.W. Bush, um, which is something that would send chills down the spine of anyone who is is a nationalist. A New World Order, Bush explained that for a thousand generations in this speech, a thousand generations, mankind had been struggling in order to reach a certain point. And now we've reached it. What's what's the point? What is that point that we reached? And he said that what, what we've come to is that we're going to replace the rule of the jungle with the rule of law. The, the vision of wrapping the entire globe in a single rule of law which in you know in some versions in the original version it, it that, that rule of law would would emanate from the uh, Security Council of the United Nations. Later, other others realized that that wasn't such a good idea, so they came up with different versions of it. Um, the Europeans think that you know that that they're. The, the the various European courts are mm-hmm. you know where the law should come from and there are uh, there are American schools who think actually America's the hegemon it should simply dic- dictate what the rules are there's a, there's many different versions of this but what virtually every um, political party Democrat and Republican Labour and Tories and and across Europe for the last generation up until up until Brexit and Trump and Salvini and and the rest of these nationalist uh, upheavals, for a generation, our uh, our best minds, our best people, and I'm including many many people who I've known well for decades, and I I feel personally close to, became enamored with this idea that history had ended, that the thousand year struggle had had finally come to an end. And that now we were going to be able to create this uniform law for the entire globe. Is is this different uh, significantly from Francis Fukuyama's end of history thesis after at the end of the no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it's it, very much that. It, it, it's very simple. There, there, there's all sorts of slightly different versions, but Fukuyama called it the the end of history, the, 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 the triumph of liberal democracy throughout the world. Over all other ideologies. O- right? Over all other ideologies in every corner of the world. You know, he, he thought maybe there'd be some holdout, some like crazy tribal places somewhere in the jungles of Burma or something. He writes about that. But, but in general, that there would be one way, one constitution, one way of living that would conquer the world. Uh, Charles Krauthammer um, spoke, wrote, wrote about uh, universal dominion, mm-hmm. where and the unipolar uh, moment, right? right yeah. where, where the Americans and the Europeans and the Japanese and some others would, in effect, create um, a uh, uh, the, would would reduce the importance of national independence and would create a single a single legal. Uh, um, a legal and cultural entity, which would then gradually, hopefully, be able to 
uh, to take on, you know, the, 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 the other parts of the globe. And there are many other versions of it, but I think that these aspirations were utopian. They were, uh, that they, they were the result of a kind of, um, ecstatic excitement about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And they ignored two things. They ignored first the fact that there just are many people in the world who don't want to be liberals. There are many, many people in the world who simply don't want their, their, their countries to be whatever America is today. Well, let's, or, let's be clear. Most noteworthy, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, um, the jihadists, the Islamists—they have well, a very different conception of the way the world should almost, look. And be almost, ruled. almost the almost the entire Muslim world. I mean, th- there's a lot of different things in yeah, the Muslim world, on, but yeah. almost the entire Muslim world does not want to be America, and and uh, not all of them. Ha- not all the reasons for for their saying that are are necessarily bad, and so so the the first thing they they ignored is that. Uh, many Muslims, Chinese, uh, uh, Russians, Indians, ma- many people in Africa don't don't want to be what America is. They might want to learn certain things from America, but they want to be something else. And the second thing that uh, that it ignored was the uh, limits of uh, of American or Western strength. And those limits are not; they're not simply. Uh, military limits that, you know, that, that the, the U.S. can't even conquer, you know, a relatively weak country like Iraq and, and force it to become a, a democracy. So that there are, there are military limits, but much more than that, the, uh, the, the, the Crystal Kirkpatrick argument for, um, bringing the boys home was principally an argument about, uh, about America's domestic problems. It was an argument about the fact that, uh, that, uh, America and Europe have not actually solved, um, all of the great issues of how we're supposed to live. They saw a, uh, societies that are, uh, great and wonderful in many, many ways, but in some ways are, uh, deteriorating and going the, the wrong direction. And now I think a, a generation later, the United States has, uh, almost 40% of children being born outside of, of, Marriage and a declining, uh, uh, de- uh, de- a de- declining life expectancy, and all the other ills that you're familiar with. These these are things that require time and attention and investment. Not not just not just money, but they require more than anything else. They require the attention and the investment of the. Uh, the leadership elites, not just the government, but all the, th- the, 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 the thinking people who, who are paid to worry about things. If they spend their time, and, and I think people really just don't understand this. If you spend your time trying to figure out how to make democracy work in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in Yugoslavia, then all of that attention is being diverted from paying attention to what's going on in your own country. If you have the societies in Africa that perhaps don't want to live like Americans, that's fine. And of course, I would argue they should be tolerated. But you also have these societies that are not satisfied simply not to act like Americans or Europeans. They have very aggressive designs, uh, very hostile designs on America. So you may not want to develop and may not be able to develop uh, some kind of liberal democracy in Afghanistan, but you also don't want the Taliban hosting Al Qaeda while it plots how to hijack planes and crash them into buildings. You also have China, which clearly has hegemonic and broader designs and seeks to diminish the United States. You have Russia, which intends to reestablish empire. You have Iran, where they're reciting chants of death to America and death to Israel every day. And they're not necessarily kidding about that. So while you might like to say, let's come home and work on all our problems right here, you do have these threats that you, I would argue, you don't want to allow to metastasize over time without doing something about. Uh, You want to make clear that if you threaten us, you will be sorry. At the very least, we will be, we will have the power to punish you if we cannot successfully deter you. No? Yes. I, I, so that I, means that I, I, I agree with all of that, but, but I, again, I think, I think that 
after a generation of uh, what I frankly call imperial thinking. I think I, I think that Americans are, have to make a transition now to uh, where that will allow them to distinguish. There's one option, which is there's the rule of uh, um, a, a rules-based liberal order that wraps the around, uh, wraps the entire planet, and America is the principal enforcer of it. And wherever somebody deviates, it's America's job to police it. That's that's one model, and then there's another model which says um, the United States can't simply um, uh, withdraw its its attention behind its own borders and ignore the rest of the world. And so we need to come up with a uh, with a realistic system of um, of alliances of of independent nations that share at least some basic values. They should at least share our uh, our 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 belief in uh, in a world of independent nations and they should at least share our belief in some kind of um, uh, um, self-determination for the people within their country so that the, I don't think we necessarily need to be allied with uh, uh, with countries that don't recognize the self-determination of their own people. But with with those those two caveats, there's a huge difference between a world in which India, uh, India uh, and Australia and Japan, let's say, have primary responsibility for the containment of China, China in Asia, and they're allied to the United States. But but the the principal responsibility, when I say principal responsibility, I mean both financially and in terms of of uh, of uh, if 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 there's a, a cost in terms of human lives lives, then they're going to be borne by American allies that are strong enough to do the work. That's a completely different world from a world in which America pledges to be responsible for the security of all the other countries in the world. But what is it we do militarily or otherwise in response to those nations that have declared their, themselves our enemies or, are, or who are acting as our enemies and mean to do us harm? What is, uh, what is our response to that? We can't. The, 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 look, you, you, you have to deter them, as you said. You have to deter them. And you have to oppose them, but there's a uh, and you know to maybe if if possible to try to get them to, to to stop, and if if not to 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 make them afraid to not do the things that you don't want them to do. But that's not the same thing as as taking responsibility for imposing a new government on China. I don't I don't think the United States mm-hmm. knows how to impose a new government on China. And I don't think most of us want to. I do but I also think there is on both the right and the left this idea that we don't need much of a military. We can simply uh declare victory and go home from a lot of places where our enemies uh if we were not there would proliferate and would become stronger. I think in other words the, the non-interventionist or even isolationist and there's a, I think they're isolationists on both the right and the left at this point. I think what it seems to me what they don't see is the possibility that or the likelihood that if you leave your enemies alone to plot against you and and you become weaker militarily, you are only putting off uh, a much a conflict for later. You're not clearing the underbrush and the fire when it comes will burn much hotter. You know, I, I, there is a limit to how strong militarily America can be. I'm, I'm certainly not. Uh, arguing in favor of America becoming weaker, but I think that there 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 are objective factors. There 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 is the the you know the out of control uh, uh, national debt, which, which is eventually going to bite, uh, and 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 there's the willingness of the American people, which is a very real thing. You can, I mean the uh, Americans on both the right and left um, are uh, are really quite tired of the. Uh, pol- policing the world theory, and and so I think I think it's important to be realistic. It would be much better if the United States could get other nations. All right, and now I I know the Trump administration has talked about um, a two percent of GDP that uh, that would be the you know the, the Europeans paying their fair share of NATO. I, I'm talking about something actually that, that's quite a bit more more. Um, uh, more robust than that. 
a country like Poland, all right, a country like Poland is it it is physically situated on the doorstep of a historically aggressive expansionist imperialist Russia. If Poland wants to be able to remain an independent country, it has to be able to establish, you know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point, it has to be able to establish an independent deterrent. Now, when I say independent deterrent, I don't mean that Poland has to be able to single-handedly mm -hmm. fight Russia, but it does. What it does have to do is uh, Poland and the rest of uh, the rest of the front line Eastern European nations. They have to invest sufficiently culturally and economically. But th but this is primarily not economic. This is primarily a matter of of changing your mindset. That are we willing to do what it takes in order to maintain our independence? Mm -hmm. A country that is willing to do that is not going to be spending, if if Russia is on its doorstep, it's not going to be spending 2% of its GDP on the military. It may be spending 4%. Right. It may be spending 6%. It's not enough to it simply be spending join 10. NATO. They have, right, right. It, has the, the, it has to go to the, the Poles and their local allies are going to themselves, you know, with, with American help, with the help of others, establish a sufficient deterrent so that the primary onus is on them. I believe that when Americans see that countries like, like the, the Eastern Europe, Europeans, the Japanese, the, the Australians, India, uh, Greece, Israel, when they see that countries like that, Ethiopia, are, are, Willing to do what it takes to maintain independence instead of simply being a protectorate or a dependency of the United States and expecting America mm. to do the work, I suspect Americans will be more willing to help. Right. I, I, I'm going to just say this quickly because uh, a couple other subjects I want to get me while we still have time. One is I agree with you that America can't be the policeman of the world, but I've made the argument that America can be the sheriff of the right. world and should be. And what's the distinction there? So the policeman has to enforce all the laws. The sheriff knows that down at the saloon, there are people playing poker for money. There are painted ladies doing things that he doesn't want to know about. But when there's a bad outlaw or gang in the, in the territory, what does the sheriff do? He appoints deputies. They've got to volunteer. A posse. He puts together a posse. He goes after them and he cleans things up one with a judge or without so that the town's folks can go about their business. Now, I think the U.S., if the U.S. doesn't play that role, if we are, say, we are only interested in what goes on in our borders, the rest of the world doesn't matter at all to us, then the thugs, the outlaws, they will take over. Uh, Dodge will become an unlivable town at that point. And I... And I, and I, and the factor is there is nobody else. If America doesn't at least lead, doesn't act as the sheriff in that sense, there is no good nation that has the strength and there is no strong nation that is good. So I don't see that there is a, a, a reasonable alternative to our playing a leadership role, which I would argue is not the same as an imperialistic role because we're not trying to deprive under this, I don't think we are at the US, trying to deprive anybody of their sovereignty. We're not trying to tell people everything what they have to do within their borders. It, it, we're just saying there are certain things we we may respond to. It may be that we we that that we completely agree. But the question I'd ask you is is what do you think about the idea of America setting a uh, a goal of creating a security architecture in which other countries have an independent defense capability? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably absolutely necessary, and I think it's I think it's an interesting th subject at a time when we're all celebrating the 70th anniversary uh, of NATO. We are kind of ignoring the fact that NATO is rather hollow at its core. That NATO is not uh, anymore as it should be an organization of independent nations, all of which are strong enough to defend themselves, but can use the help of others right. and rely on that instead. We have not least the Germans saying we're not going to even spend 2%. And by the way, if we become more dependent on the Russians by uh, signing this uh, Nord Stream 2 that brings in uh, – uh, so we'd be more, more dependent on the Russians. That's that's not – that's nobody else. That's our – that's not a problem. And it is – it actually is a, a problem because you're saying it's all up to the U.S. at that point. And the Americans may very well say – why should it be? And I and I totally get that. There are two other things I definitely want to just talk about. One is I and you touched on it, but I wanted to develop the idea 
by a lot of Americans and a lot of Europeans that the that the UN can function as some sort of world government and should develop in that direction. Everything tells, should all the evidence suggests that's not true and that would be a terrible idea. The Security Council has Russia and China on it. They are undemocratic nations at this point. Why would you want to have a global government based on the UN? I think the UN was fundamentally flawed from the start, largely because what was it trying to do? It was trying to say the free world and the Soviet empire have, an, have enough common ground we can find a way to get along and establish rules we'll all go along with. That hasn't worked out and we haven't acknowledged what I think is a great failure. It seems like it, I, I agree. It seems like it never worked. I mean, you can hear and there. You can point, 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 point to things. You can point to, let's say, the Korean War. But overall, the United Nations has uh, has not worked. And the reason it hasn't worked is because there, there just is nowhere near enough commonality, as you say, among the major players in order to be able to create some kind of uh, joint government of the world. And uh, what 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 I hope that we can develop, I, th I think we're going to have to redefine what an ally is. And we're, we're going to have to say um, there's such a thing as a protectorate, a dependency. If Germany wants to be a protectorate or a dependency and is not willing to invest in defending itself, okay, so maybe – I don't know. Maybe that's for the best. But but they can't have the same status as a country that is willing to shoulder a significant chunk of the of 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 the the burden for the security of of the the democratic world, and I think America should be looking to have special relationships with uh, with those countries which are which are de democratic, which support a world of independent nations. If that means that that the uh, that the Germans or the French are are are, are simply not at this stage going to be part of that because they have, you know, they, they have their own life. So, so be it, but better that than pretending. So the other subject I definitely <clears throat> want to get your thoughts on before we close out is the European Union, which I, which again, if I'm reading you correctly, you do see as a sort of neo-imperialist structure. And perhaps Brexit is an expression of Britain saying, we want to protect our nation and we can't do it within the confines of the European Union. And you have uh, also Hungary. You and I recently visited Hungary, um, which is in a quarrel with the European Union over uh, European leaders, not least uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, deciding that we are going to have migration, as she calls it, from the Middle East and from Africa. And there's going to be what she calls a fair distribution. Every country much takes its fair share. And the Hungarians are saying, no, we're going to preserve our nation state. We are going to transmit it to the next generation. We're not taking in large numbers of people from other cultures and other lands. We simply are not going to surrender our sovereignty to that extent. You just comment on all that. Sure. I, I the, notice that the European Union uh, in, in its current form uh, was, was established in 1992. So it's it's part again part of that that utopian heyday of the end of history after 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 the fall of the Berlin Wall, and uh, and and many people really thought that it would be possible to have uh, they the, the, they were talking about something that's new and unprecedented and and has never existed before, but it's not true. The EU is not something that's never existed before. It it it, it it's. I'll, I'll, um, alarm, alarmingly similar to the Holy Roman Empire, um, and the, the German attitude of, uh, trust us, you know, we, 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 we can have everyone's good in mind while they pursue their, the, their own interests and somehow Germany flourishes and other countries less. So it, it is, it is so reminiscent of, of the, the medieval experience. And even setting, even setting that aside, um, I think it's really clear that uh, at this point, that uh, if the Germans and Brussels uh, feel that it's their job to veto the Italian national budget or to veto and replace, to to appoint, in fact, the the Italian finance minister, mm. I mean, they they they, they basically uh, uh, run run the Greek economy, and it's not clear that they're running the Greek economy well. You know, I mean, if the Greeks are going to make a mess of it, at least they should they should you know make a mess of it themselves. And 
so to to so we it, it is in fact an imperial force it's an ideological force what makes it the reason we don't see it as an empire is only because of the fact that it's not military yet and I don't know how that's going to go. I don't know where it's going to go. And that's a problem. It gets back to what we were talking about before because yes. it's not military. It, in, a, in, in essence, tell me if I'm exaggerating, kind of wants to use the U.S. as its Praetorian guard. It does. Yeah. That's, ex that's, exa that's exactly right. The, the, the Germans would like to be able to dictate the laws and the policies for the entire continent of, of, of 500 million people in Europe. And they would like, whenever it's necessary, to apply – more than the smallest modicum of force for America to do it for them. And that doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense for America. And it makes no sense for the Europeans. You know, I, 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 last point I'll make is that I find entirely justifiable Britain's desire, as I see it, uh, to reestablish, reaffirm its nationality. Uh, and it's belief that it can, can't do that if it stays in the European Union. On the other hand, I think the European Union can only get worse if Britain leaves. And in that, at that point, Germany becomes more dominant. But I, 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 I think it's going to go that way whether, whether, whether England, whether, whether, whether Britain gives up on independence or not. Germany is so much more powerful than everything else there and it, and the the trends just con continue in that direction it's going to go one of two ways either uh, various countries one way or another are going to free themselves and the EU is going to become a, a lot smaller and tighter um, or uh, Germany is going to have to impose its will on those countries by force in order to hold it together uh, that's not tomorrow but it has to be one way or the other. There aren't. There, there, it can't continue uh, uh, stumbling indefinitely because there are real-world threats that it's going to have to deal with. Yerma Hazoni, I've got many more questions and many more subjects I'd like to discuss with you, but we're out of time. But I will have you back. That is in the plans. Looking forward to that as well. So I, for I'm now, looking forward to it as well. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for the company, and thanks to all of you who have joined us here and now on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fbd.org. You can also tweet us at Foreign Policy on Twitter. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.